The FT. Hello, we're back. I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the Financial Times, the podcast that is basically the state banquet of audio offerings, with the exception that you don't get to sit next to Kate Middleton. Today's four-course menu features Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to the UK, the first interview with rogue trader Kwaku Adaboli, why Moscow is a bit dull, and introducing Canada's new Prime Minister, the man with possibly the best hair in politics. Apologies to President Xi, who also has an excellent fringe. First, President Xi visited the UK this week, and China's state media seemed very happy with the manner in which he was received. Here's Jamil Andalini, our Beijing bureau chief, explaining why Britain's reputation in China can use all the help it can get. Every Chinese schoolchild learns about the outrages of the opium wars, the British colonial imperialist incursions into China, the unequal treaties, the gunboat diplomacy, the opium dealing. This is something that's very much still talked about in China, that Britain did these terrible things to us. They started the carving up of China amongst the imperialist powers, and they were the most active. And so Britain now turning around and putting the Chinese president in a golden carriage and feeding him down the Mall to Buckingham Palace plays very, very well in China. But the trip isn't playing so well in Washington. Here's Dmitry Sevastopoulou, our Washington bureau chief, explaining the reaction. The US feels very strongly that the UK has thrown many of its old principles out the window in order to boost trade with China and to get more investment into its infrastructure and other sectors. And there's a lot of consternation about that here. Now, the British deny that, and they say that Britain is still talking about human rights. It's still going to stand up to China when it feels like it must. But there are very few officials in Washington who see any evidence of that. And a very interesting quote from a guy called Evan Medeiros, who until about three months ago was Barack Obama's top Asia advisor, he said to us on the record that if there's one truism in managing relations with a rising China, it's that if you give in to Chinese pressure, it'll inevitably lead to more Chinese pressure. And he said that London was playing a dangerous game of tactical accommodation. And that's a view that is widely shared in Washington. I don't think anyone here begrudges the kind of pomp and ceremony that the British have laid on for Xi Jinping. And that's part of the mystique of Britain to Americans too. It's what happens beyond that that they're concerned about. And they think that this is happening at a time, for example, that China is being very assertive in the South China Sea, and the Americans are trying to challenge the Chinese and challenge their claims to sovereignty over disputed waters. And they feel that if they don't have British support for a international rules-based order that the Americans and the British helped to create after World War II, if they lose that, then it makes their position weaker and it makes it more difficult to challenge China. So, on the one hand, the US is arguing for a strong stance against China. And on the other, the British government is saying that by being friendly to Beijing, the UK will receive favourable treatment. Back to Jamil Andalini. The criticism you hear amongst diplomats based in Beijing is scathing. I mean, it's really like everyone. I know for a fact that many of the diplomats have been sending cables back to their capitals in recent weeks and months. Pictures of kowtows, you know, references to kowtow. Everyone pretty much thinks that this is a poor strategy to follow. Talking of poor strategies to follow, rogue trader Kwaku Adaboli, the man who lost $2.3 billion for UBS, has given his first ever interview this week to Lindsay Furtado of the Financial Times. The poor strategy, by the way, was losing the billions of dollars, not giving an interview to the FT, which is always a great strategy. Anyway, Adaboli, who was convicted in 2012 and released earlier this year, had been a highly regarded trader at UBS. But he told Lindsay Furtado he had actually been about to quit banking shortly before he was caught. 
I just didn't enjoy being a trader, although I was proud to work for UBS. Mm -hmm. Even generating profits was not something that made me feel happy. I was concerned about what it meant for the world, the job I was doing. And as a result, I had a conversation with my partner and she said, look, I think it's time for you to decide whether you're going to stay. Now, I decided at that point back in June, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. to leave the industry. And unfortunately, it's a great <laughs> tragedy. Within literally weeks of that decision, the losses began. After his arrest, Adeboli became pretty much enemy number one for UBS. The bank's lawyers and public relations people urged his conviction. How does Adeboli feel about his treatment at the hands of his one-time employer? I understand why the institution needed me to be convicted. And I also understand why such a big team was needed. Because ultimately, I carried UVS on my shoulders. And that needed to be erased from my character. You know, I said during the trial that UBS had become my family, mm -hmm. that I loved my bank. And that's true. I don't I don't hold resentment. I don't I'm not angry because ultimately I understand why institutions behave the way they do. I just hope that my former colleagues and current UBS employees understand what their responsibilities are going forward and mm -hmm. that they hopefully can learn something from what I went through. I kind of hope that having made the choice to go to trial, to get a worse sentence than I would have if I hadn't, mm -hmm. that the lessons that we exposed are of value to others in the industry. Anger is not an emotion that I generally carry anyway. I never have, and I doubt that I ever will. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way I'm built. You know, I went to a school, a Quaker boarding school, which had the motto of non sibi sed omnibus, not for self, but for all. And so I made a set of choices for the institution. I failed and I made terrible mistakes and me, along with others, cost the institution. But I would hope that my former colleagues aren't angry because I would hope they would understand what was driving me. The people who knew me in the institution know what drove me, which was to advance the institution's goals. I'm not angry. I'm not resentful. I move forward and I hope that I'm able to achieve something positive for the industry and for society as, as a whole. And so there can be no anger there because I've learned so much. And I've, as I say, it feels like a blessing to have gone through this process, to have an opportunity to do something positive with it. And so, no, I'm not angry and I'm not resentful. The whole interview is available on FT.com and it's the cover story of this week's FT Weekend magazine. And just in case you thought that banks had fixed everything, this week, the FT revealed that Deutsche Bank had accidentally transferred $6 billion to a hedge fund client. Martin Arnold, our banking editor, takes up the story. It was a mistake by a junior salesperson on their London-based foreign exchange trading team, and they processed the payment as a gross payment rather than a net payment. So it should have been a lot smaller. There were several too many zeros, apparently. Unlike UBS, however, Deutsche got the money back. Now... Moscow has lost its title as the world's most congested city, according to SatNav provider TomTom. Tom. But does that mean that the Russian capital is a nice place to visit? Guy Chazan, our page one editor, who used to be based in Moscow, joins me now. Guy, you went back to Moscow after eight years of not having visited. What did you think, better or worse? Well, superficially, Moscow has got a lot better. One of the changes that I noticed, which really, really jumped out at me, 
is that they've introduced paid parking. Now, I know that sounds incredibly trivial, but um, it's actually incredibly important for Moscow. If you can imagine, Moscow used to be a city where people would park anywhere. They would park on the pavement, they would park by the side of the road, any road. They would double park. It was just completely random and chaotic. And it was a real problem for people who were trying to get traffic moving in the city. And that's why the city became so congested. Now, because everybody has to park in these designated areas now, and they pay a lot of money to park there, it means that there's less chaotic parking, obviously. And there's actually a lot of people are just abandoning their cars and using public transport instead, because it's so expensive to come into the city and leave your car parked and pay for it. That's quite a trivial thing, but in fact, it does reflect this sort of more general change in Moscow, which is that it's a bit smarter, it's a bit more spruced up, a lot of money has been invested in just improving public spaces and just making the place look a bit more attractive and getting rid of some of the clutter, the street furniture, which just made everything look a bit messy. That's all gone now. So that's the kind of thing you'd expect from a, a city that had gone through a huge boom boosted by commodities over recent years. Yeah. But now we're in the middle of a recession. And so if you walk around Moscow, do you notice that? Do you feel that this is a sort of a place that's vulnerable, really, in economic terms? Absolutely. I mean, the restaurants and the cafes, they look pretty full to me. But in fact, all of their takings are down, apparently. People are not dining out and drinking out and socialising outside of the home the way they used to. When I left in the late 2000s, it was around 2007, there was an incredible boom in the restaurant business. Restaurants opening up everywhere, cafes, bars. And it was an incredible phenomenon because when I first arrived in Moscow in 1991, there was nothing, absolutely. The city was dark. It was a sort of terrible economic crisis after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there was just nothing. So It was amazing to see that transformation of the city, but it does seem to have slowed a bit in the sense that people have less disposable income now because of the recession. So those places are just not full and a lot of them are closing down. And finally, there is this sort of myth about Russians as sort of pessimistic, have years of suffering and hardship. I mean, do you get that feeling when you talk to people there that there's a a pessimism about Russia's outlook? Yeah, there was a pessimism again creeping back. That pessimism had gone into abeyance in the Putin boom years, which basically lasted more or less continuously from the time he became president in 2000 to essentially about the financial crisis in 2008. So eight strong years of growth. It petered out a little bit and now it's gone into a full recession and people are feeling almost like the cycle has returned. They thought it was a bit like Britain. They thought that boom and bust was behind them. And unfortunately, because oil prices are now so low, the Putin boom has turned to bust and people really feel it. Guy, thanks very much for joining me. Finally, the world doesn't often pay attention to Canada. The country is all right, really, though not for the whole weekend, as the British humorist Saki put it. But this whole week has been buzzing with the electoral triumph of the Liberal Party, led by Justin Trudeau. Amy Keane asked FT columnist Gary Silverman the obvious question. Who is Justin Trudeau? Well, I think in the beginning, he's a great head of hair. Uh, that's really kind of... <laughs> fantastic. He has fantastic. He has one of the best heads of hair of any person in politics in the world. And in a way, the election kind of pivoted off of that, where in the early stages of the election, the conservatives made fun of him. He's the son of a prime minister. He's, a, he's very photogenic. I mean, he looks much younger. He's 43. He'll be 44 on Christmas Day. Uh, But if he said he was in his 20s, it's believable. He's in fantastic shape. He looks like a pro athlete when you see him. 
Uh, he's very charismatic. That's enough, Gary. We get the picture. Now, what about policy? The interesting part of it is, that to some extent, he flanked out to the left uh, against uh, Tom O'Care of the left-leaning New Democratic Party, uh, embracing a kind of stimulus spending and, and, and embracing the idea that with interest rates so low, Canada should borrow money to fund infrastructure. And I think that gave him, one, a selling point, and two, sort of spoke to his, his uh, thoughtfulness. That rather resembles Corbynomics, the people's quantitative easing championed by British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn. That's all for this week. Our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes. Thanks for listening. The Best of the FT podcast will be back next Friday. Please join us then. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.